This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 23rd, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, news editor Tim Appenzeller joins Alexa Billow to discuss science's breakthrough and runners-up. I talk to online editor David Grimm about this year's top news stories. And in a bonus segment, Valerie Thompson, science's book review editor, shares some of the best science books for the year. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some of this year's top online news stories. So Dave, we've got big online winners, uh, meaning they got a lot of hits and some of your favorites. So let's start with one of the big online stories this year. We covered some of them. How about this one? Undead genes. What do we need undead genes for? (laughs) I think we did cover this one. This is a very sort of macabre study about scientists trying to figure out after we die are our genes still active? And if so, which genes are active? And they looked at about a thousand genes and they found that a lot of them, surprisingly, were either active after the body died and they looked at mice and zebrafish, I believe, or actually turned on, became active after these organisms died, which is really unusual. And some of these genes do things that you would might expect. They Maybe they respond to inflammation. And of course, when the body is dying or decomposing, maybe you would have genes turn on that deal with injury and things like that. But other ones were genes involved in development, which you would not expect to turn on, or genes involved in uh, cancer. So there were some surprises there. All right. So why do you think the audience responded to the story? Well, Zombies. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, very clear in the story that this has nothing to do with zombies, but what it might actually be useful for is finding new ways to preserve organs after death or even finding new ways to determine when somebody was killed for forensics investigators. So not about zombies, but uh, some other potential cool applications. Very cool. Okay, let's move on to one of your favorites. I see gambling plants, which we did cover. Um, And then what about this mysterious Cold War military base? What's that one about? Yeah, this is one of my favorites of the year. This is a, sounds like something out of a James Bond movie. You've got this Cold War military base called Camp Century that was built 
by the U.S. in 1959, and they sort of built this subterranean city under the guise of conducting polar research. And this was hidden beneath the Greenland ice sheet. But what there really was was a military base. This base was abandoned in 1967, and the government didn't think much about it because it was already encased in ice. They figured, well, a bunch of snow is going to fall, a bunch more ice is going to form, and this thing's going to basically be buried and lost to the ages. And I think they were sort of hoping that was going to happen. But what this new study revealed was that thanks to climate change, that maybe in 100, a couple hundred years or so, this ice is going to disappear and this base is going to be revealed for hmm. all the world to see. What are they going to do with the base once it shows up? There's actually a, a really big downside to the base being uh, revealed. And that is the base has, actually has a lot of toxic chemicals in it. So the U.S. and the countries that are involved, which includes Greenland and Denmark, are probably going to have a lot of choice words for each other when it comes to these pollutants starting to leak into the environment and who is going to clean them up. Okay, this next one, I don't remember either. It's about 6,000-year-old fairy tales. Which ones are we talking about? Well, one of the oldest ones they found was a tale called The Smith and the Devil, which tells the story of a blacksmith who makes a deal with the devil in exchange for unmatched smithing powers. <laughs> Wouldn't smithing we all powers. want those? Now, that particular tale may not trace back 6,000 years, but it does seem to trace back at least a couple of thousand years. But some of the oldest tales the researchers found do trace back up to 6,000 years, which is really surprising because, you know, in another example of sort of upending what scientists or researchers had thought, you know, a lot of us think about fairy tales. We think about the Brothers Grimm in the 19th century. And we sort of think that's where fairy tales began. Your great ancestors. Exactly. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, what this study did was it basically applied evolutionary analysis to fairy tales to try to find some common aspects in 275 stories and then use an evolutionary tree type analysis to trace back when these could have originated. And that's how they were able to go back thousands of years. And so a lot of the fairy tales are newer in origin, but some of them actually may be a lot, lot older than we thought. Hmm. Okay, one more before we wrap up. Uh, something about something about whether or not I could outrun a T-Rex, right? Do you think you could outrun a T-Rex? No. <laughs> Turns maybe, out, maybe a baby. Maybe you could. Maybe you could. You know, we, we have these conceptions of T-Rexes, especially thanks to Jurassic Park, the movies, that they are just sprinting down the road and you, you could never outrun them. But thanks to some dinosaur tracks found in 66 million-year-old rocks, researchers say that T-Rexes probably didn't go any faster than about five miles an hour which is slower than a plodding amateur marathon runner or even a middle-aged power walker. So what do you think, Sarah? <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sarah, maybe you would be a T-Rex's lunch, but at least this the, the hopeful news is that it means that maybe a lot of us could have outrun T-Rex. Now, there are some caveats here. This is only one set of tracks. The tracks were made in a muddy environment, so it's possible the T-Rex wasn't traveling as fast as it could have mm -hmm. uh, because of the terrain. Also, they're not exactly sure what size the T-Rex was, and the size could actually make a big difference in, in how fast it was moving. So if you've got a time machine, I would still say safer to hide from the T-Rex. Safer not to visit that particular <laughs> period of time. That too. Okay. All right, Dave. 
Let's talk about what else is going to be on the site this week. Uh, it's going to be a light week because of the end of the year, but there must be some things. Well, yeah. Well, you know, speaking of this, we're going to have our top 10 list. We're going to have five more stories that we didn't talk about today, including our most popular story of the year, which is a mystery right now. <laughs> also, we're going to be publishing some of our favorite science images of the year, and that's going to, there's going to be some real stunners on there. And we'll also be wrapping up some of our favorite and most popular science insiders, our policy stories of the year. So hopefully plenty for everyone to chew on over the holidays. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This is our last show for the year. So we'll see you again in 2017. Capital One knows you've got questions about your credit. You may be asking, who's really in charge of my credit score? Or how does my credit actually work? That's why Capital One created the CreditWise app, so you can check your credit score anytime you want right in the app. And it's free to everyone, Capital One customer or not. In fact, millions of CreditWise users have improved their score by 20 points or more. So download the app for free today. Legal disclaimer, availability depends on presence of credit history from TransUnion. CreditWise is offered by Capital One Bank, USA, N.A. This week in science, it's the Breakthrough of the Year issue, where our editors present their choices for the top scientific discoveries of the year. There are three areas to watch for next year, a scorecard on how we did for areas to watch last year, three breakdowns of the year, nine runners-up, and one overall scientific breakthrough of the year. Here to discuss it with us is news editor Tim Appenzeller. I'm Alexa Billow. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. What do you want to talk about first? Well, let's, let's get the breakdowns out of the way. All right. So what are the breakdowns? We've got three. We picked two to talk about. These are events that affected science in some way, and we picked two. One was the collapse of Theranos, which was a much-touted, some might say hyped, company that was going to revolutionize clinical diagnosis by making it possible to diagnose or to do all sorts of tests on just a drop of blood rather than a whole vial, which is what's needed now for many tests. Unfortunately, the technology didn't live up to the claims, and the company is now in bad straits after having been initially valued at somewhere around $9 billion. And the other were the very sad events in Turkey. There was a coup, an attempted coup in July. And in the crackdown that followed, thousands and thousands of academics lost their jobs. University rectors were fired. Students who were studying overseas were called home. And the repercussions are continuing even now. All right. So those are the breakdowns. What are the areas to watch for next year? So these are three developments that haven't necessarily culminated this year. But there are things that happened this year that are likely to have consequences for science next year or the years to come. One is vaccines for the Zika virus. The Zika epidemic was much in the news this year, and scientists responded very quickly. There are at least three candidate vaccines that will be going into trials shortly. By next year, we should know which of them works. Another is the results of the elections in the U.S. and Great Britain. 
This summer, British voters chose to leave the European Union, and the British government is going to follow through on that. It isn't clear yet what the consequences for science might be, but many scientists fear that they will lose out on collaborations with other European researchers and that immigration restrictions will make it difficult for foreign scientists to work in the UK. And then, of course, there is the US presidential election. To many scientists, the election of Donald Trump is worrisome because of things he said during the campaign, rejecting the reality of climate change, for example. His early cabinet picks show that he is continuing to reject climate change, reject the reality of climate change. And other scientists are worried about what his administration might do that would affect research on embryonic stem cells, for example, or fetal tissue. And just to be clear, this is not an issue of partisanship. This is about scientists seeing the institutions that support them potentially coming under fire. That's right. The third area to watch is Planet X. So Planet X has not actually been seen. This would be a new ninth planet orbiting in a 15,000-year orbit, far beyond the orbit of Neptune. And it was detected from its gravitational influence on large comet-like bodies that, that also orbit in the distant solar system. They seem to be herded into orbits along a common axis. And scientists are inferring a much larger object far beyond them that is hurting them. So a search is already on for this ninth planet along its likely orbit. And it's possible it will be spotted in the next year. How likely do you think it is that we'll find it in the next 12 months? The orbit is very long and it's going to be very faint. So we'd be lucky if we saw it in the next 12 months. But it'd be pretty cool. It would, yeah. It's Neptune-sized. It's a big replacement for Pluto, which was dethroned as the ninth planet a few years back. And just as we have areas to watch this year, we had areas to watch last year. And I understand there's a scorecard on where we came in on those predictions. Yeah, we did a little better than the pollsters who some say got the results of the U.S. and U.K. elections very wrong. So we were dead on on our area to watch in gravitational waves. We predicted that this year would be the big discovery of gravitational waves, and indeed it was. Of course, rumors were already swirling at the time we finished up last year's breakthrough, so we had a bit of an advantage. We did not so well on predicting that the first results would be out from a satellite mission to measure the so-called equivalence principle, which is the idea that masses of different materials fall at the same rate. This is Galileo's fabled experiment, dropping things from the Tower of Pisa. This was a much more precise version of it in space. The results aren't, aren't out yet. We predicted that this might be the year when the big mystery of where dogs originated would finally be cracked. Scientists are very divided about whether dogs evolved from wolves in Asia or in Europe. And there have been lots of competing findings. A big project is underway to study dog DNA and ancient dog and wolf fossils to try to get to an answer. A preliminary answer did come out this year, which is that dogs may have evolved or been domesticated in both places, Europe and Asia. But there are likely to be a lot more details to come. So before we get to the actual breakthrough of the year, let's touch on really quick a couple of the runners-up. What almost got crowned? Well, our runners-up ranged from technology to basic biology. And one really cool one has to do with old cells. 
there's this idea that aging cells release sort of nasty compounds that basically age the rest of you. And if you could just sieve out those cells, get rid of them, you might be able to slow the course of aging. That was borne out in experiments in mice and rats, showing that getting rid of these aging cells can reverse atherosclerosis, the plaque in coronary arteries, can also rejuvenate the animal's livers. Now a clinical trial is underway to see if removing aging cells can slow the progress of arthritis in people. Another cool one is pocket-sized DNA sequencers. These just became available this year, though they've been experimented with or been in development for some time. These read the DNA molecule by pulling it through a tiny pore, base by base, and measuring tiny electrical changes that reveal the sequence of the DNA. The advantage of this is that you can sequence basically any length of DNA without having to chop it up beforehand, which simplifies interpreting the data, and that they can be made very small. Now that these sequences are available, people are taking them into the field for rapid diagnosis of epidemics. They were even used to do some sequencing on the space station. And this is a device that you can fit in your pocket. That's right. A lot of DNA sequencers are so big, they take up a couple of square feet on a laboratory bench, but this is literally the size of an external hard drive. Another one that I think is capturing a lot of people's imagination is a very, very nearby exoplanet. In fact, it's around the nearest star to Earth, which is Proxima Centauri, only about four light years away. No one has seen the exoplanet. It was detected by watching for little wobbles in the star's position. But it orbits every 11 and a half days, which is a very short orbit, much, much closer to the star than Mercury is to the sun. But the star is a red dwarf, so it's cool and dim, which means that a planet in an orbit that small wouldn't necessarily be roasting. In fact, conditions on the surface might even be habitable. So astronomers are doing follow-up studies, hoping to learn more about it. So we held a vote on our website asking people to weigh in on what they thought the most important scientific discovery of the year was. What did they vote for? Well, it was a surprise. We had 15 candidates and two rounds of voting. The second was a choice among five finalists, and we had more than 40,000 votes in that second round. And the lead sort of changed hands during the 10 days of voting. But in the end, people picked an achievement of growing embryos in a dish for 13 days. These are human embryos. 13 days is really close to a 14-day limit that ethicists and scientists have agreed on for culturing human embryos in the lab. It's twice as long as they've been cultured in the past. And many scientists would like to go beyond the two-week limit because they'd like to see what happens to an embryo in its later stages of development. This is causing lots of ethical debate, which is likely to go on in the coming year. So as it happens, the science editors did not choose the same breakthrough as what was voted for on the website. What did you choose for the top breakthrough of the year? So it really was not a very hard choice for us. We picked the discovery of gravitational waves. This was a prediction of Albert Einstein's 100 years ago. People had been searching for them for 40 years, but technology has only just put them within reach. So these are tiny, tiny ripples of space-time brought about by the most violent events you can imagine. Two black holes spiraling together, for example. These shake the very fabric of space-time and cause tiny ripples that were finally detected late last year. It was announced early this year by two enormous detectors in Washington State and Louisiana, which detected ripples in space-time that amounted to a tiny fraction of the width of a proton. 
that was as strong as this Titanic event one and a half billion light years away was when it passed the Earth. Both detectors saw the same event, which gives the scientists high confidence that it was real. And it's not just fulfilling a prediction. This opens the way to a whole new field of astronomy that will let us investigate black hole collisions throughout the universe, other extremely violent events, and do very refined tests of Einstein's theory of relativity. Because it's not just, congratulations, we found them. It's now we know how to find them and where else we can look. Yeah. New gravitational wave detectors are planned or being built in Italy, in India, in Japan. And with this large set of gravitational wave telescopes, you might say, we'll really have a new window on the universe. That is extremely cool. A brand new field of astronomy. It is. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about the breakthroughs of the year. I was glad to do it. You can read about these and other breakthroughs in this week's issue of Science. As part of our end-of-the-year show, we've invited Valerie Thompson, Science's book editor, to come on and talk about some of the big stories in science books this year. So, Valerie, let's dig into 2016 science books. Starting with a blockbuster, Lab Girl, why was this book so well-received? So I think the first reason that it was such a hit is that it's an incredibly candid look at the life of a modern scientist. And then the second reason is that the writing is brilliant. For those who aren't familiar with it, Lab Girl is a memoir written by the geochemist and geobiologist Hope Jaron that kind of weaves stories about her coming of age as a scientist with anecdotes about how plants interact with the environment. She's incredibly frank about the uncertainty that she felt in her early years as a researcher and about the uphill struggle that she faced building a career in a male-dominated field where funding is hard to come by. But at the same time, her reverence for science is kind of almost tangible in the book, and she's unapologetic about her success, which I feel like a lot of people found refreshing. Right, right. And so this was an easy call for you to include, you know, in a book review in science? Oh, yeah. It was it was kind of a no-brainer. I've always trying to find ways to showcase, you know, the diversity of lived experiences and science in our pages. And I've been reading her blog for years. So I saw the book and I kind of knew instantly that we were going to review it. Well, that book, you know, you kind of knew it was coming. It got a lot of attention. What about one book this year that was great, but didn't get the same reception? What do you think deserves more attention than it actually got? One book that came out this year that I think deserved a lot more attention was Abby Smith-Rumsey's book called When We Are No More. So Smith-Rumsey is a professional historian, and she's done some work with the Library of Congress. And this book tackles the idea that uh, big data poses a problem for preserving our collective cultural heritage. It's really interesting. So the idea that we have so much information makes it really hard to store and archive it. Right. So in so in days gone by, archivists would evaluate books and documents and other cultural objects, and they would say, okay, like which of these are we going to keep for future generations and which should we discard? And this had to be done because the materials in question were physical and they had to be stored in a physical space. Well, this not the case anymore. We're in the digital world and we have this ability to store, you know, previously unimaginable amounts of information. And so the question kind of becomes, you know, should we? Mm-hmm. And if so, how is this going to affect future generations' ability to kind of make sense of it all? And then also, like, how can we ensure that the information outlives the medium that it's currently housed in? Right. So what's neat about her approach is that she uses these so-called inflection points in history. So 
you know, she kind of points to the origins of writing in the ancient world and the first print natives and the inception of, you know, the notion of a library to show that it, this kind of isn't a new problem. Like we face this every time there's a major shift in how we codify things. So she notes, for example, that Socrates was really concerned when writing became a thing mm. because, you know, back in those days, it was kind of considered a moral act to commit something to memory. And so right. his argument was that, you know, like this was kind of a, writing was amoral, basically. So this is, sounds just like a problem that science is already facing, in, you know, in the everyday of production of data and then how it's preserved and shared with others, but on a much even larger scale. Right, right. And I thought that was one of the reasons I was excited about reviewing this book is because I thought the ideas would really resonate with scientists, many of whom are are kind of dealing with this data deluge in their own research. Of course, she doesn't have any, you know, simple solutions. There's not some big resolution at the end. But I think that this is one that would really, as I said, resonate with um, a lot of our readers. Mm -hmm. Okay. The last book we're going to talk about actually didn't get reviewed, but it did prompt a lot of press coverage in general, a lot of controversy. Tom Wolfe's The Kingdom of Speech. What's the major criticism of this book in a nutshell? Tom Wolfe is obviously a big name in literary circles. Um, he's probably best known for his 1987 novel, um, The Bonfire of the Vanities. And he's also known for being provocative. So in this new book, he takes on the theory of evolution and challenges Noam Chomsky's work in language acquisition. And his main argument is that speech did not originate through evolution. It is a tool created by man as a mnemonic device to help us remember things. Hmm. And the problem from a scientific viewpoint is that his arguments just aren't supported by the data. So he claims, for example, that Darwin had no evidence for his theory of evolution. And we know, of course, that that's not true. He also kind of disregards the fact that contemporary scientists observe evolution in real time in the lab all the time now. And the idea that there's a, this language center in the brain, which is one of Chomsky's theories that Wolf takes issue with, is kind of widely accepted in the scientific community today. It's true we don't think of it as, you know, an actual separate organ anymore. We would think of it now as like a specialized circuit. But the evidence that he presents against Chomsky is more controversial than he implies. Mm -hmm. So why, why bring this book up? I mean, do you feel like it's something science would review because, you know, it has, it does take on scientific issues? Or do you feel like without that, you know, deep understanding of the, the material, it, it shouldn't really be included in a review of science books? That's the hard thing. I receive hundreds of books to review each month, and it's challenging to figure out which ones our readers will find most interesting. So ultimately, when I looked at that book, I just thought our readers are not going to find these arguments very compelling. And I chose not to review it. But in hindsight, I kind of think it would have been worth reviewing. It's a book our readers were, I'm sure, interested in and were reading about in other places. And I think that we would have been really well positioned to comment on it. Mm -hmm. So one thing I'd like to mention before we wrap up, you actually review kids' books, too, on top of all these uh, nonfiction and fiction books. Can you share some of the titles from your end-of-the-year kids' book wrap-up? Sure, yeah. So this is always a favorite thing among the staff who who write the reviews. So each year in December, we review the finalists for the Science Books and Films Prizes for Excellence in Science Books Awards, <laughs> which is kind of a mouthful. But um, it's basically, it's a competition sponsored by Subaru and AAAS, which is the publisher of science. And it highlights books that promote science literacy in children and young adults. So one of my favorites from this year is a book called Solving the Puzzle Under the Sea, which tells the story of Marie Tharp, a real scientist who mapped the bottom of the ocean 
And the book is actually targeted at pre-K and early elementary children, but it doesn't shy away from talking about kind of the challenges that women face in science. And so for that reason, I think it's kind of a very good and very timely book. Another fun one that we reviewed this year is a book called Crow Smarts, and it describes how the new Caledonian crows make and use tools, which is a skill that not very long ago we thought was unique to humans. This one is intended for middle schoolers, but our editor-in-chief, Jeremy Berg, who is the one who reviewed it, actually admitted that he learned a few things from the book, so I thought that was, that was kind of neat. And then the final one I wanted to mention was a book called Resurrection Science. It's about the science of de-extinction. And this one um, appears in the young adult category, but it, it doesn't simplify or dumb anything down, especially with regard to the scientific and ethical challenges that are posed by this endeavor. So another good one there. Great. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Valerie. Absolutely. Valerie Thompson is Science's book review editor. Starting in 2017, we'll be hearing more from our book section. Valerie will be coordinating one interview a month with a book author for the podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.